welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Welcome in. This is the Tuesday Not So Deep Dive episode on Chit Chat Money. The show is only available to CCM Plus subscribers. So if you're listening to this, thank you for subscribing as we continue our housing theme. And we're talking DFH, which is DreamFinders Homes. Uh, we're going to be, I guess, shortening that to DFH throughout the episode because the name is a bit strange. But they're a small cap home builder. Really aggressive strategy and have grown phenomenally over the years. Uh, but I'll let Ryan introduce that. But first, just a quick side note. If you are listening to this and you're not receiving our emails uh, with the show notes and the charts that go along with each episode, email us at chitchatmoneypodcast at gmail.com. I know we got a few. And if for some reason we didn't respond or you're still not getting them, just double email us, triple email us, and we will sign you up. So chitchatmoneypodcast at gmail.com. The spelling is in the show notes. All right, Ryan, introduce DFH. Yeah, DFH employs basically a similar model to NVR. So if you are a new listener or you haven't listened to that NVR episode, I recommend that as well. We kind of go through the model, but basically when I say they employ a similar model, it's just that capital light financing strategy. I'll talk a little bit about what that is, but basically DFH is just a really fast growing home builder that operates in six markets currently. So it's Jacksonville, Orlando, DC, Colorado, Texas, and the Carolinas. So a bit of a uh, more diverse markets as opposed to NVR. NVR was pretty much located primarily on the East Coast. This kind of spans different areas of the US. Um, But that asset asset light land financing strategy is basically for those that haven't listened to it, haven't listened to the NVR episode, instead of buying the land outright and holding it on their balance sheet while they develop it and then sell it to prospective buyers, DFH enters into finished lot option contracts or land bank option contracts where they put down up to 10% or 15% of the estimated value up front, but they can cancel the purchase at the end if needed and they'll forfeit that deposit. So they're not buying it outright. They're buying the option to buy it later, and they're paying 10 to 15% of the estimated value as a deposit on that. Um, anyway, dur- during the time that the land is being developed, DFH is marketing and selling the prospective homes, typically to either entry-level or first-time move-up buyers. Those are sort of the target customers for them. Their average selling price was, I believe, $463,000 this quarter. So slightly more expensive homes than when we looked at NVR, but still it's sort of that entry level uh, homes. And then they allow each buyer to kind of add some customization to their home, which they then pass along to their construction design team to initiate the building process. So once that lot is finished, the construction design team will kind of go in, start to, I guess, they're not the ones breaking ground, but they're giving the plans to subcontractors to go out and do the building. And so that part is similar to NVR where they don't have all the equipment on their balance sheet. They don't have all like the the bulldozers or, or all the materials it requires to build a home. Well, they, they do have, have plan. you know, they talk about the asset light. They brag about that. 
There's some charts that will show, and maybe this is just a one-time thing, but the asset white has been a bit asset me- maybe medium or uh, I, I don't know. I look at their inventory. It seems fairly large to me, but I bet it's better if they were, if they were doing the, uh, the land purchase strategy outright. Yeah, and I'll talk about that when we get to the balance sheet. They, the construction in, in process is recorded on there as as inventory which is um has been growing and it's it's a sizable amount of their assets in total so um they do claim pretty asset light but there are some areas where they, they do hold assets on their balance sheet um in the form of equipment and homes uh but once the lot is finished they've uh and the customer has put the deposit down they've got the mortgage approval and they start to break ground apparently um DFH says that the typical construction lasts or takes 75 to 150 days. And that was for basically, I think it was like their uh, four bedroom units, um, which is sort of that average size for them. Although it kind of depends if they, if it's a luxury home or if it's a bigger home and there's a bunch of customization, sometimes it'll take longer. And I imagine that during some of the supply constraints, when they were struggling to procure a lot of the materials, that construction process took a little longer as well. The reason I, say the duration of the construction is because that construction in process, like I said, is inventory on the balance sheet. So they're holding that on the balance sheet. Um, and it, the longer that it is, the longer they have to hold that. And then in addition to their core home building operations, DFH offers some uh, ancillary products like mortgages and title insurance. So they offer mortgages through their jet home loans. It's not a subsidiary, but it's a banking joint mortgage banking joint venture. So they own 49.9% of it. I believe that allows them to keep it off. Their yeah, they love the statement. they love the complication stuff. It was like the opposite of NVR. NVR was the simplest uh, 10k whatever balance sheet, all that stuff. And DFH, um, they gave us a little bit of homework. Yeah, and the, so they do not own the majority of that mortgage. I'm not going to call it a subsidiary, but partner. Um, however, they offer mortgages. On, on behalf of DFH. And then they also have the title insurance. That's a wholly owned subsidiary called DF Title. Basically, the goal of these services, they're small relative to the overall home building operation, but the goal is to kind of hold the hands of the buyers and make that closing process as simple as possible so that you know it, it encourages more people to buy through DFH. Um, as for the history, uh, kind of a fascinating story, actually. So Patrick Zalupski, he's been around the homes business for a long time. His mother was a realtor in Jacksonville, um, and her, her husband, I wasn't wasn't sure if that was his, his dad or not, was basically a home flipper, I guess, that he would buy foreclosed homes and rehab them. And then so in 2005, Patrick kind of wanted to get into that business himself. So he bought his own foreclosure and began rehabbing into rehabbing it into what was going to be a nine unit condo, but he kind of learned to, in, in building that condo, he learned he does not want to be a part of, or he doesn't want to be in the condo market. He said they are uh, the first, it was the the first to go and the last to come back in in sort of a recession. And he, he wasn't fond of that. And so he quickly realized he wanted to do single family detached homes. And he was trying to get into it, but he said, in the lead up to the recession, it was impossible to get any available land because the big home builders would come in and just buy 500 lots in one gulp and basically speculate on it and then build it in the meantime, because it was so easy for them to sell through those homes, given uh, the bubble, some of the misleading mortgages that were offered at the time. Yeah. 
Um, but once the great financial crisis hit, Patrick saw a lot more opportunities. He said there were a couple lots that were being offered for 80,000 a year before that were then being quoted to him for 20,000. So he, he saw the opportunity, took out a $200,000 loan from the Clay County Housing Finance Authority in 2008. Um, and he was able to build three homes with that $200,000 loan. At the time, he was able to convince the developer to let them pay for the land after they'd sold the homes. I don't know if this was common practice at the time or what the maybe the land developers just didn't have a whole lot of options or a whole lot of buyers given the market environment at the time. So either way, he was able to basically start what would eventually become his now today option model where he didn't have to pay for it until he actually sold the home. Um, These homes in particular were low income homes. So they had to find the right buyers, which was a little difficult, but um, they basically just replicated this process a couple of times. He'd take out these loans from the Clay County Housing Authority um, until they became big enough in 2011 to get a real bank facility. So they, I think they'd sold like 27 homes doing it this way. And then they became a real company 2011, got a bank facility, were able to you know expand the operation. And then over the last 10 years, they basically just grown like a weed. So they've grown into new new markets, both organically and through acquisitions. We've talked, we'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Their largest acquisition was $471 million purchase of MHI. Huge, huge, almost a merger. Yeah. Which operates in Texas. So that's kind of been the strategy. And then they went public in 2021 and part of going public, part of one of the benefits of going public was that they had a whole bunch of different revolving credit facilities under like 30 different, I guess you would call them uh, DFH subsidiaries. So they were able to consolidate all of that into one single unsecured oh, credit they facility. Love, they love the credit facility. They, they do. They love it. We'll get to the balance sheet later, but it's been basically their growth strategy since the beginning. It looks like, um, and so they were able to uh, make it much more seamless by going public, and they've raised a lot of capital in the last year or so. Yeah. All right. I'll hit industry and competition. Very simple. So I'll keep this part short because I think the management and ownership is a lot more interesting for DFH. So they operate in the home building industry. Uh, if you listen to the NVR show, it's the exact same market opportunity as NVR. I'll give the same fact here. Uh, IBiz World estimates the home building industry in the United States to be $129 billion in 2022. Uh, so with about $2.67 billion in trailing 12-month sales, DFH has approximately 2% market share based on those numbers. I think that makes sense. Um, if you look at the largest home builders, they're about 25% market share. And you have NVR, I think was what? It's like 7 to 10%. I can't remember exactly. Yeah. So DFH is smaller, but still, as they've grown really, really quickly, they are not that small anymore. Now, a couple other notes here. As we mentioned before, the industry is affected by many macroeconomic factors, including the big three, which would be interest rates that affect mortgage rates, um, current supply of homes, and demographics. So how many people are looking to buy homes? Now, lastly, I'll just list off some competitors, although it's not, since at its heart, it's really a commodity industry and it's kind of you know, what markets are you in and, and what land lots do you have and all that good stuff. And once you have the lot, you're going to build on it. No one can just <laughs> compete for you on that. So it's not too relevant here, but the other competitors, you know, include NVR, who has the same sort of strategy that DFH has learned a lot from. And then there is Lennar Group, uh, DR Horton. Um, I think those are the big three. I mean, there's a ton out there. There's also a ton of small business uh home builders and all that good stuff. And they really model themselves after NVR. They, they talk about 
NVR in their shareholder letters, which some people might find a little weird, but um, so far it's, it, it, it's beneficial. Yeah, there, I, I would argue, and maybe at the end we'll discuss whether they're actually the same as NVR um, or whether they want to be. Yeah, or I guess this, the, the business model may be the same, but the culture seems a little bit different. And that kind of leads into the management and ownership section. Here's some facts I think that were important. So DFH was founded, still run by Patrick Zalewski that Ryan mentioned. He is currently 41 years of age, so quite young, but still not, you know, kind of tech founder young. Um, and he has the majority ownership and voting rights of the company. So he can basically run this as a dictatorship if he wants to. If we look at the table, I won't read off the whole table, but he has 65.5% ownership that grows to 84.7% voting power because of his class B stock. Now, other important board members that I thought were relevant include William Walton III, which is a funny name, I thought, <laughs> very East Coast, uh, and then Radford Lovett. Both of them have really, um, they're kind of lots of experience in the real estate industry. I think Lovett is in the tower industry, but still kind of real estate. And then they also own a sizable chunk of stock. So if you look at the board members, Lovett owns about 5.5% of the company and William Walton owns 2.7%. I thought that was nice. Uh, if we look at total board of director compensation, it was below $1 million in 2021 at about $734,000. So it's an immaterial part of gross profit. However, both Lovett and Walton are on the board and they are uber rich. Um, it was a little bit disappointing not to see them waive their salaries, but it's fine. Not a big deal. Now, if we look at total executive compensation in 2021, it was $21 million or approximately 6.7% of gross profit. Kind of something to keep an eye on um, as that it's a sizable portion of gross profit. And if they keep up this executive comp, um, that's going to hurt their operating, you know, operating margins down the line. Now, the big thing I found when looking at the proxy statement were a few red flags. So first, um, and maybe we'll discuss how red these red flags are. First one are that executive bonuses are based on adjusted pre-tax income. Here's the quote. When determining actual adjusted pre-tax income, the committee, which is the compensation committee, may decide to exclude one-time items, including mergers, less acquisition costs, litigation expense, restructuring costs, and changes in accounting. This one opens it up to me to them basically being able to always give themselves the bonuses whenever they want to, and it incentivizes them to go after acquisitions, which I may right or may not be expenses. Yeah, exactly. And then right. write up those Takes, expenses. Take the pre-tax income. Yeah, exactly. All right. Yeah. Second one red flag I saw also tied to compensation is Alepsi essentially gifted himself as he controls his company $10.6 million in stock awards last year, even though he already owns over half the company. I, I put a question here. Why does he have to be so greedy? I when this happens, it really concerns me when someone already has kind of a founder stake in a business and is still trying to pay themselves a really, really large portion of, of the, of say the gross profit. It's offsetting dilution just for him. Yeah. I, I don't mind if they are deciding to pay the other executives handsomely, but that don't have maybe ownership in the business, but for someone who already owns over 50% of this thing, it, it just doesn't make sense to me. Um, it, it rubbed me the wrong way. And then lastly, there is DF Capital. So here's the quote, and it's confusing. And if you're really interested in this business, I would look at it because there was a t <laughs> the related party stuff here kind of threw me in a, a pretzel because there's a lot of ways you have to connect it. But here's the quote from the proxy. The company has a 49.9% ownership interest in DF Capital, an investment manager focused on investments in land banks and land development joint ventures to del deliver finished lots to the company and other home builders. 
for the construction of new homes. So this DF capital is the one that is finding the land lots for DFH and I guess among other companies. So this wouldn't be that big of a deal, but the fund has investments from both Zalewski, uh, the COO, CFO, and board members, which feels to me a little bit, I know it's not that bad. It feels a little bit like self-dealing to me so they can earn extra returns on lots of DFH buys from the fund. I wonder why this can't all be consolidated under DFH. If if I was going to be an investor in this company, I would want to ask the management team why it has to be this way, because it seems like it's another way, and maybe I'm reading it wrong, to enrich the board and, and executives. I agree. And there's it's I, just a question I would have. I always get a little hesitant whenever there's a limited partnership associated with a business where the, the, and the executives are on it. Executives <laughs> are a part of it. And I think that's yeah. probably due to Enron, but and maybe there's situations and maybe it helps in these situations because you can raise capital from exactly. They raised from the uh yeah, I think I forget well, what one of the board members, Walt and I think owns Rock Point, which is a uh actually Whatever. So there's something that Rock Point is a real estate investment company and they gave DF Capital $100 million. And maybe that's very helpful for the expansion strategy. I just, it, I would just fees? be concerned. I have questions. I would ask, yeah. I'd be asking management that. Um, all right, let's move to earnings, Ryan. Yeah. So uh, I'll, I'll talk 2021 and then basically the same way we did for NVR. I want to talk about the most recent quarter because the quarter over quarter numbers matter a lot given how much. I mean, rates right now, have changed. Yeah, lately. mortgage. I saw a good chart. Mortgage rate velocity, uh, the move up in rates is at the the highest in history. So the, just the change in in the market is just really rapid right now. All right. So twenty twenty one, they had just under five thousand unit closings. That was up fifty five percent year over year. That generated one point nine billion dollars in revenue and one hundred forty nine million dollars in pre tax income. However, most recent quarter and. A lot of these numbers are going to look great, but there's some, there's some more recent data that you want to pay attention to as well. Yeah, so, and then some of this is inorganic because of the MHI acquisition. So, which was a little frustrating because they didn't break out how much, and yeah, they didn't have to state yeah. it. Yeah, um, some really yeah, some math in the, the SEC filings. So revenues were seven hundred ninety-one million dollars for the most recent quarter. That was up one hundred eighteen percent year over year. Gross margin and. Uh, this one I think is a real figure. It's hard to like skirt around this, but 19.7% gross margin. That's up pretty significantly from last year. It seems like a lot of the um, supply chain crunches are starting to abate a little bit where I think the materials costs last year were starting to hurt them. So gross margin might've been slightly down, but like just in general, 20% gross margin for a home builder, pretty solid. They had 1,649 home closings. That was up 66% year over year. So, so growing on a year over year basis once again. And the average sales price was $463,000. That was up 30% from last year. Now I want to go to the quarter over quarter numbers because this gives you a better, I think it encapsulates maybe what's going on a little, a little yeah. more closely. So sales price from the first set, First quarter to the second quarter declined 1.4%. Not too bad, yeah. um, especially given how much rates rose during that time. Backlog of sold homes declined 3% during that time. And then net new orders from the first quarter to the second quarter declined by 41%. Now, 
there might be some cyclicality within the new orders. I know they talked about some seasonality in the business, but even on a year over year basis, the net new orders were down 6%. So they're clearly seeing a bit of a demand fall off. The other part that's really important, cancellation rate has jumped from 14.4% to 21%. Yeah. But I had a good chart. I, I made sure to chart that going back to 2018, 2019, it was uh, slightly above 15%. So this is even above pre-COVID. All right. And so hopefully that gives a better, a, a good sort of sense of yeah. like what the financials look like for the business right now. They can generate, I think on a good year, I would say they're generating 10% operating margins, slightly lower. Um, and on the last full year that looked like a good one, they did about $2 billion. Well, here, here's an interesting on the operating margin. So from 2018 to 2021, operating margin uh, went from say 4.7% to 5.9% to 7.1% to 8.3%. So I think they're getting, and we saw with NVR, it was closer to 12% or higher. So I think they're getting that economies of scale. So um, as they grow, hopefully there should be, you know, operating, operating leverage here. All right. Balance sheet. This was a bit of a tough task, but I'm going to start with the liabilities. The pretty much the only and the biggest liability was DFH's revolving credit facility. So it's a pretty, uh, I tried digging in on the 10K and it's a little bit of a complicated agreement. There are a bunch of different covenants and contingencies that would allow um, the banks to pull funding if they violate certain of the covenants and um, the yeah. actual rate changes frequently. It changes changes each year, but what they base on, the interest rate on change can change as well. Yeah. So it's based on LIBOR, which we don't need to get what LIBOR is, but that's kind of like the rate that banks are giving out. Um, they, well, uh, I don't, and that changes. Not always. Not, I know it's, well, say for this say scenario, it, it could be based on LIBOR, but it might be based on something else. Uh, but just for reference, uh, the one month LIBOR is now 3.4%. And I think it was LIBOR plus 1%, right? For them. So if you kind of take that, that can be a good measure as say, because you can track LIBOR in real time. So if you wanted to calculate what their interest payments might be on that construction credit facility, um, this could be a good estimate, although it might change just because of all the complicated things that Ryan was mentioning. There's also, yeah, I think LIBOR plus one is what they went with, but then there's also like you, they could choose the lesser of the rates of a bunch of different, there's <laughs> yeah, the SOFR yeah. plus two kind of thing. And they've got a whole bunch that they could choose from. Effectively, the interest rate, of, as, of, of, as of the latest yeah. 10Q, their interest rate was 4.1%. I would expect that to jump. As Fed, I, mean, I think even simplifying it, this is probably as simple as you you know want to get it. As Fed funds rate rises, their interest rate will rise. I guess, yeah, the other, other the most important thing to understand is that this is a variable rate debt structure and it's debt that has continued to grow. So in the last quarter, they had $875 million drawn from their revolving credit facility. The credit facility itself has commitments of up to $1.1 billion. So they can draw more from that credit facility if they'd like. And then there's something called an accordion feature, which I imagine means they have to hit certain hurdles that could expand the borrowing base up to 1.6 billion. So I think basically it's just saying like, you know, if, if they get to certain, I'm assuming it's pre-tax income hurdles, you can expand the borrowing base. Um, yeah. The, the important thing to understand here is that the, the interest rate is going to rise on this and they use this constantly as, as a growth tool for themselves. 
and it's one that continues to grow. Um, the, they've, they've amended it once since coming public already. I wouldn't be surprised to see them maybe add another amendment to it if they, in, in a couple of years. So, um, something to keep an eye on. And then the assets slash sort of, I guess, cash flow, you could say here, they only have $84 million in straight cash and cash equivalents, but they have $288 million in lot deposits, which as we know, can be called back if needed, minus you'd have to forfeit your deposit, but um, or, sorry. No, 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 I thought yeah. about that wrong. Yeah, that that that's that is better. But the inventory is what they can. It could go into essentially inventory. Yeah, yeah. So it's actually that's probably not. I mean, but still, look the in, the inventory stuff has been ballooning, and maybe the, the cash flow has been hurt by that. So maybe they're about to get a ton of cash flow right now. Yeah, man. The management on the last quarter said that they see it as three hundred thirty four million dollars in available liquidity. They didn't exactly. State how they get to that number. How expensive is that liquidity? Yeah. Um, but just know, I guess they're borrowing pretty much all of it. And the uh, so on that last 10Q, they had $1.4 billion in inventories on the balance sheet. I believe 80% of it roughly was construction in process. So if the business is growing, which it has been quite quickly, and it, I, I think shareholders there are expecting it to continue to do so. The, the construction in process, unless like the construction times shrink dramatically, the construction in process is going to grow constantly. So yeah, inventories are going to look larger each year. Yeah. And there might be some, it might be inflated right now. And there could be a benefit as it flows through uh, the supply chain stuff seems to be normalizing the United States. So we'll see if that helps it. But either way, since they're a home builder, that cash flow, even though they're in that acetate model, it's still uh, just a downside of the business. Yeah, I guess the way I'm thinking about it is that if your construction and process is sort of the biggest asset on your balance sheet and you're growing, it's going to continue to balloon. If you stopped growing the homes that you're building, you'd kind of have this windfall of cash come through. Yeah, but, but that's then, just not realistic. <laughs> that means you're going out of business. Yeah, and then if anyone, for reference, on the Substack newsletter or, or drive, uh, I'll have, I have a chart of inventory plus lot deposits over the years. It has grown quite quickly. Omo DeMar, our valuation. Let me, let me just, or you have one more thing. $256 million in operating income over the last 12 months. That's a pretty solid number. It's going to be enough to service the, the credit facility that they have if that is steady, yeah. if not growing. Yeah. If it ever becomes an issue. All right. Valuation, uh, market cap, $983 million enterprise value because of that debt is higher at $1.78 billion. So we're going to use enterprise value to gross profit, enterprise value to operating income and enterprise value to free cash flow. Although free cash flow is not helpful right now because it's negative. But if we look at enterprise value divided by gross profit, it's 3.7 and then enterprise value divided by operating income, it is 6.9. So an operating income basis is pretty cheap, but I think the market is telling you that they don't believe that that operating income is sustainable over the next couple of years and that 2021 was inflated. And then also home builders get a discount because of the cash flow stuff. So EV to free cash flow is negative 26 and that's because of the inventory right now, they're actually, um, and we'll talk about maybe how they're trying to hide free cash flow uh, expense or sorry, their, their cash flow statement may not I don't know. You got, you got to look at that a little bit more closely, but let's move to anecdotal evidence. Uh, Ryan, what do you got? Well, nothing with the homes, but I yeah, thought it's just home writes builders. a pretty good shareholder letter. 
they also have that partnership with Dream Fiber Homes thing with Boston Omaha, which could be nice for attracting people. You know, you have that. I mean, it's just a nice little add-on that they partner with them for. Um, yeah, it was. I guess it's we nice. went to the it's Boston nice. Omaha meeting. They talked a little bit about DFH, um, mainly the the fiber partnership. But yeah, yeah, and they own a large chunk. I guess we should mention that Boston Omaha owns a large chunk of it. If that matters to you, um, they had high praise for uh, Patrick Zalewski as well. Yeah, well, beginning. he made he made them a lot of money. So yeah. yeah. What about uh, you? Anything? Uh, I mean, reading the shareholder lever, yeah. I mean, it's clear that management has a great track record of growth. I mean, what would they say? 40% growth, something like that, I think. Uh, lot growth or whatever metric they were using for the top line. However, I get a small bad feeling in my stomach when I look at how fast they are moving and then some of the compensation stuff. I think one word to describe my feeling on this business is aggressive. Yeah. Like, that's just the one word here. All right. That's, Ryan, I'd say the biggest discrepancy between them and NVR yes. is NVR's patience. The cult, yeah, the cultures could not be different, even though the business model seems very similar. Uh future growth opportunities though, Ryan. Well, okay, so there isn't a lot talked about on this. Um, but I went with build for rent. Um I mean the really the growth avenue here is that they build more homes, which is kind of too obvious. So I'm going to yeah, not use that. <laughs> These um, business models are so simple. That, yeah. Yeah. So build for rent homes are basically the same homes DFH would be building, but designed for long-term rentals. I think there's a quote from, I believe it was the second quarter release. They said in quotes, our our build for rent platform provides a consistent home deliveries pipeline, which is less susceptible to temporary changes in demand from individual home buyers. Um, apparently built for rent homes comprised roughly a quarter of, uh, of the homes in DFH's backlog last quarter. So um, I think this just gives them a little bit of optionality in case home buyer demand drops yeah. off a cliff. And they can sell to institutional buyers, maybe bigger companies that are trying to maybe own a bunch of whatever yeah. and start start a kind of a community yeah the thing that kind of concerns me about this is rentals are a different business like mm-hmm. it requires different i think systems in place like it's i don't think the transition's that easy and it seems like they're trying to do this because they're feeling demand falling off from the home buying that they need to give these buyers maybe an option before they can get financing to rent for a couple of years Maybe it's easier than it sounds, but I would think that there's a whole different business that's required to manage that build for rent platform. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like we don't, we have no, we both have no experience with that, but there is uncertainty. Like there's just some unknowns there. All right. Mine is acquisitions. I mean, they explicitly stated this in the annual letter. Acquisition is going to be a part of the strategy. MHI, uh, as Ryan mentioned, was $471 million. And that is before the contingent considerations, which is the long-term paths they get on earnings. And make sure to look at those on the cash flow statement because they're not, they're included on the cash flow part. So they can uh, just, they're not including the free cash flow. So whatever. Um, but, you know, if they want to move quicker, they can find a new home builder in a new market, maybe a smaller one. They can accelerate volume growth of say, where they wanted to enter, I don't know, Nashville. They can enter there, Nashville and the suburban areas over there. However, the only downside here is it's likely going to be fueled by debt, raising preferred stock, which we didn't even mention. We probably, if you're really interested in the company, check out that preferred stock deal, but it's not a huge part of the balance sheet uh, or equity raises due to how little cash they have on the balance sheet for funding these acquisitions. So they said they're going to acquire companies and given their liquidity position, it seems like it's going to be have to done, be done with more debt. So again, balance sheet, very, very important here. All right. Highlights and lowlights, Ryan. Highlights. I like the flexibility of the land option strategy. 
in tough times kind of allows them to pull back and uh, mediate spend better than the typical home buyer. Also, I keep thinking like, how's this different than NVR? I think this this strategy generally is better than most of their competition. Yeah. And the thing is that it allows them to be more aggressive, which could be a good thing or a bad thing because it's allowed them to get more aggressive on like future lots and, and homes under construction and stuff like that. However, if you're too aggressive, you might be in the same position relative to your balance sheet as the traditional home builders. Yeah, I, I agree. That's one of my lowlights, but uh, other highlights, Zolopsky's basically been employing this build on leverage model since 2008. Um, and so I think he has a good sense of how to manage it and hopefully not yeah. get ahead of himself. Um, and then the last one is that they've just, I would think that it's really hard to grow fast in the home building business. Yeah, it's a commodity at its heart. So, yeah. and they've done it. Yeah. And yes, it seems like they've taken on a little more risk to do it, but um, you can't really argue with the growth. Low lights. The big jump in cancellation rates is pretty concerning. They may have to forfeit a lot of those deposits um, if that's the case. The second one, there's a part of me that feels like Zalepsky tries to time the market. Um, so there's this quote from, and this might not be timing as much as like just coincidence, but there was a quote from the second quarter earnings release. He said, during the first month of the quarter, the company delayed the sale of homes until later stages of the construction cycle. Later in June, demand tightened in response to the rapid rise in mortgage rates coupled with continued home price appreciation. I'm trying to think if maybe they were like, why would you delay the sales process? Right. Like hoping that rates decline? Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. I agree. Which I guess leads to my maybe one of my other points is the land option strategy gives you flexibility to pull back in tough times, unless you're levered like, like crazy, because then you've got to pay back your lenders and you don't have as much, you're not as inclined to exercise the right to like defer. You're not going to say, Oh, don't worry. I'll wait because I don't need it right now. You're going to buy it because you have to service that debt. So you're just, you're taking out part of the, part of the benefits of this strategy is that you basically functionally get a longer time horizon than the traditional home builders. And you're taking that away, I think by putting a whole bunch of short-term debt on you. Yeah. It seems like the low light here is that they're kind of like saying they have this advantage like NVR, but the decisions they're making might be shooting themselves in the foot and not giving them that flexibility. Um, Last one. uh, I just get a weary feeling when you establish a limited partnership under your umbrella, it feels like I'm like a lot of, it feels like money might be flowing through to executives that isn't deserved. Yeah. Look, we can't go over this in the audio format. There's a ton of, just look at the cash flow statement and investigate that. And if it's super complicated, (laughs) that's their fault. Yeah, They they should make it really simple. I, I mean, Explain if you're it. establishing a limited yeah. partnership, I think you have an obligation to shareholders to explain why you're doing that in a very concise and simple to understand manner. And it has grown uh, to a new, bigger size. All right, my highlights, let's see anything else that you didn't have. I mean, I have the moving into text. I think it was a big positive through that MHI acquisitions. I mean, they're in all four of the big markets there in that state. And the, all, you know, the state is growing quickly. Um, it seems to be set to have a ton of homes built over the next decade. I think that MHI acquisition can really 
be great for unit volumes. Uh, low lights, uh, we talked about management integrity already and a little bit of risk there. We talked about using adjusted income as the incentive measure. Um, the third one is, you know, it's just what creates true shareholder value is, you know, free cash flow available to shareholders. I think we all know that if you're listening. DFH has struggled to generate cash recently, and you know they have some expenses hidden in the cash flow statement that may that might make the quote free cash flow number look high when in reality it's not available to be returned to shareholders. They're paying back maybe the preferred stock stuff, um, the contingent considerations. I'm forgetting exactly, but just there's a lot of stuff that might be sketchy there. Um, and lastly, is the macro or not lastly? Uh, well, I guess you already talked about interest rates, so maybe the last one for me: macroeconomic uncertainty. Um, you know, how far will housing prices drop? What will materials costs look like? Uh, we don't know how bad it will get, or even it's going to get bad over the next few quarters. Maybe as we're recording this right now, you know, mortgage rates are at 7%. Maybe that's the peak. Who knows? But they could go higher. Um, it's uncertain, and it just kind of shows that they're in a tough industry when the macro stuff can affect them, combined with a tough, uh, it, it's a tough ability to generate consistent cash flow because of the inventory. All right, bull case for you, Ryan. Uh, yeah, I think the bull case is pretty simple. It's I'm just going to kind of put some numbers on the next three years. So let's say the average selling price annually over the next three years is flat with where it's at today, $460,000. Home closings increase by 10% a year. That would be a little under 10,000 homes closed on by 2025, so 9,300 roughly. Um, and then operating margins remain somewhere between nine to 10%. You've got about 430 million in operating income by 2025. I don't think you have to jump through a whole lot of hoops and hurdles to get to a pretty good return there, if that's the case. 430 million in operating income, today's enterprise value is 1.8 billion. I think you're gonna generate good returns assuming any sort of reasonable multiple. Yeah. and. If anything drops there, they could grow quicker just because historically they've grown their home closings at a faster rate. Now, I mean, mine is just the aggressive growth strategy works wonders. Uh, you know, you hit economies of scale, you get 10% operating margins. Uh, as we mentioned before, they, they've been growing as they've, you know, trying to get that operating leverage. And it, it leads to consistent cash flow generation because of the asset light model. And even though cash flow is a little bit inconsistent, it's been it, it's it's able to stay positive, giving them that flexibility. I mean, at the current EV below $1.8 billion and with $255 million in trailing operating income, if they continue to grow at a rapid rate, it's, it would be extra, I mean, almost impossible to lose money here if they continue to grow while being profitable. Now let's move to bear case, yeah. Ryan. I mean, it's pretty easy here. Well, right? with, with the amended credit agreement, it feels like they're getting really aggressive heading right into a potential downturn. Yes. If that happens, cancellations will jump. If cancellations jump to say like 25%, I think the math starts to break here. If they're going to have to forfeit deposits, margins will contract, servicing that debt's going to get much tougher. It basically becomes this total momentum reversal in the business. Yep. And I don't think they've really protected themselves for the downside, if that's the case, like yeah. if that starts to happen. I mean, momentum, we don't need a science lesson here, but mo momentum is mass times velocity. So- the difference between them and MBR is MBR's velocity is pretty slow for a reason because they want to be cautious because they know the industry. Uh, yeah. When you have you know growing amount of mass inventory and you're moving fast, 
you multiply those together, it just creates a lot of risk. Uh, let's see, anything else from mine I had is similar. I mean, we get margin pressure due to home price drops, I think. Uh, you know, the strange expenses that keep showing up could be hurtful for shareholders. I don't think that's a business quality risk. It's more of a shareholder risk in relationship to executives. Um, and I do think executives could be running this business for themselves and standing together for themselves and minority shareholders. I think that's a fair case as well over the long term, even if the business quality stays intact. Now, again, the aggressiveness uh, just, it worries me. I mean, here's the question I'd ask. What happens if this immature home builder with a tons of debt on its balance sheet is making some sort of mistake as we head into a brutal housing downturn? You know, what if what if mortgage rates stay at 7% or higher for three years? Um, we don't know. That could That is a plausible scenario. I don't know what mistakes they could be making, but it scares me, especially because they started at the end of the GFC have never faced a, a real housing downturn. Right. Especially not one where they have a whole bunch of leverage. Yep. All right. More or less interested. I think people, if you're listening, you might know <laughs> the answer. I think we, I know the answer to both of us here, but Ryan, more or less. I'm, I'm less interested. Um, it just feels like they're potentially ruining a good thing. It, it, it's so risky. If it works, it's going to be great for shareholders. Uh, would not be surprised if this is a 10 beggar. But uh, like, I would just rather have NVR. Yeah. What's the risk reward? Like, I think the downside here is high. And I'm in the same exact boat. Less interested just because of that. I mean, could this have a $10 billion market cap in five years? I think I would not be, I, would I be shocked if that happened? No, but. They got to take a lot. They're, they have to. Feels, yeah, it's feels just possible. risk. There's a lot of risk, I think. Yeah, I agree. Um, all right. That's going to do it for this episode. Thank you all for listening. Remember, we are not financial advisors. Anything we say on the show is not formal advice or recommendation. We are general partners at Arch Capital and clients may hold securities discussed in this podcast. We're closing up on the housing theme. Uh, so next week, we'll be doing LGI Homes. I believe they are a home builder. Let me pull up the definition traditional here. traditional they're traditional we're doing one that's non-traditional later but uh we'll figure it out as we go we take this week to week but we have the schedule out there if anyone's interested all right that's going to do it we'll see you guys next time